Our second scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses uh, starting with verse 14. Let us listen for and hear God's holy word. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote, me, quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, Do here also in your hometown the things that you, we have heard you did in Capernaum. And he said, Truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months. And there, were, there was a severe famine over all the land, yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to the widow of Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But Jesus passed through their midst, passed through the midst of them, and went on his way. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May your good news come, O Lord, not only in the words spoken, but in and through the power of your Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Amen. You probably shouldn't ask Josh Burke if he'd like to come hear me preach sometime. Josh was a childhood friend in California whose bike I picked up and threw to the ground when he angrily hit me in the gut with a basketball during a heated game of hoops. Don't ask him if he'd like to hear me preach. No preacher is without honor except in his hometown. And please don't invite the manager at the Bel Air grocery store near my parents' house to come to church that day either. He's the one I had to apologize to when I was seven because I had swiped a piece of caramel candy from the Brock's Pick-A-Mix display at the back of the store. No preacher is without honor except in his hometown. And don't count on Kenny Yaunt being there. Kenny was the bully who lived down the street, the one I threw a broomstick at while he was riding a bike. 
the handle inadvertently went through the front spokes of the bike and caused Kenny to flip over the handlebars. Truth be told, Kenny had it coming. (laughs) Plus, he was okay save a few bumps and scrapes. But don't expect him to be excited about seeing me either. No preacher is without honor except in his hometown. Jesus is at the very beginning of his ministry. If we had read the passage just before ours this morning, we would have read about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. He's made it through to the other side, 40 days of fasting and being tempted by the devil, and he emerges certain of his calling and his mission. Filled with the power of the Spirit, Luke tells us, Jesus returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in the synagogues and was praised by everyone. Then he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. Who was it that said, you can never go home again? I think it's because those people know you. They remember when they changed your diaper in the church nursery. And they remember that stupid stunt you pulled that one time in the pew during worship. And they were there for your confirmation. And for Pete's sake, they haven't forgotten the whole mission trip incident. These people know you. Jesus has come home, home to the people who know him. For most of us, our image of Jesus growing up is just a younger-looking version of him carrying the lamb over his shoulders in that one painting that seems to be in at least one, day, one Sunday school classroom in every church. Or maybe, even more so, the image the Christmas hymn once in Royal David City paints in its first verse. Through all his wondrous childhood, the hymn says, he would honor and obey, love and watch the lowly maiden in whose gentle arms he lay. And then here's the best part at the end of the verse. Christian children all must be mild, obedient, good as he. Mild, obedient, good, really? The only snapshot the Bible gives us of Jesus' childhood is in the second chapter of Luke when 12-year-old Jesus disappears on his way home from the temple in Jerusalem. After searching for three days, three days, his parents find him back in the temple talking with a group of adults they've never seen before. Luke says his parents were astonished, which I probably would translate furious. Child, why have you treated us like this, they ask. And Jesus answers with the most smart aleck answer in the pages of scripture. Did you not know I must be in my father's house? As a parent, I can say with complete certainty that this, it, this is a sign of Joseph and Mary's strength of character that Jesus ever made it to adulthood. <laughs> there are other stories about Jesus growing up, but they're not in the Bible because they're part of what are called the non-canonical gospels, books like the infancy gospel of Thomas, stories that never made it to Holy Scripture and probably for good reason. 
In those accounts, we find some unbelievable, unbelievable stories about Jesus' childhood. In one of them, Jesus is accused of pushing another child off the roof of a house. He brings him back to life, but only to get the adults off his back. In another, a teacher smacks Jesus for mouthing off. So Jesus curses him, and the teacher faints and falls face first into the dirt. Another day, during a neighborhood game, a little boy was running and bumped into Jesus' shoulder. Jesus gets so angry that he strikes the boy dead. Things eventually got so bad that Joseph, his father, is quoted, quoted as saying, let him not go forth beyond the door of the house, for all they die that provoke him to wrath. Now, we don't know if any of that stuff really ever happened. But we know, what we do know is that in addition to being fully God, Jesus is also fully human. At some point, Jesus was a seven-year-old boy at the candy display. Jesus was a middle schooler who got the wind knocked out of him on a basketball court. Jesus was a teenager, and we all know what that means. Then he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. There's no church more difficult in which to preach than the one in which you grew up. And that's exactly where Jesus is in our passage this morning. Newly ordained, preaching in his home church to his home congregation. And it goes about as well as we'd expect. It was the Sabbath morning, and Jesus went to the pulpit, opened the scroll, and read from the book of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We know now, because of a discovery from the Dead Sea Scrolls, that this was a very, very important passage to the Jewish people in first century Palestine. Some sectarian groups apparently even called themselves the poor, capital T, capital P, because they were so convinced that this passage applied specifically to them, good news to the poor. It had been a century since the Romans had taken over Palestine, demanding taxes and depriving the Jews of their rights. Under the fist of the Roman government, the faithful synagogue-goers of Nazareth around 25 AD had had just about enough. So imagine the relief when Jesus shows up saying, this is the year of the Lord's favor. It's the ultimate dream of oppressed people. When they are able to take over, when they're back on top, when the bullies will be put on the first train out of town. Can you imagine how delighted the synagogue was? They finally hear the news they've been waiting for. And on top of that, it comes from one of their own. We can still hear the whispers of the crowd through the pews. Isn't that Joseph and Mary's boy? He's done good. Jesus then rolls up the scroll and hands it back to the attendant and sits down. That was customary in the synagogue. The person reading the scripture would stand to read and then sit to teach. Luke tells us that all eyes were fixed on him. The townspeople had already begun to hear reports of his ministry elsewhere, 
and held the somewhat reasonable expectation that if Jesus was indeed a prophet endowed with the Spirit of God, then there might be some special benefit that would be given to the prophet's hometown. So when Jesus rolls up the scroll and says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, they hear good news. They hear special favors. They hear VIP treatment. Then he quotes a proverb, and we can see their excitement begin to fade just a little. Doubtless, you will say to me, physician, heal thyself. In other words, charity begins at home, right? The crowd responds, Jesus, do for us what we've heard you've done in Capernaum. Translated, take care of your own first, Jesus. Jesus then replies with a proverb of his own. No prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. That's to say the acceptable year of the Lord is not going to be acceptable to the prophet's hometown. He reminds them of two stories from the Old Testament about the widow of Zarephath and about a Syrian army general with leprosy named Naaman. We may not be instantly familiar with these stories, but I guarantee every single one of the people in the synagogue that day was. Everyone knew that the widow of Zarephath and Naaman were both, well, they were both foreigners, outsiders. Everyone knew that they were both pagans, heathens, not Jewish. Everyone knew that one was a woman and the other was a leper. They didn't like it, but they knew that in both of these stories, God's grace comes to that foreigner. God's favor rests upon the heathen, that woman, that leper, the enemy. And if that weren't bad enough, Jesus goes on to point out that there were lots of nice Jewish widows that Elijah could have helped. There were plenty of good Jewish lepers that Elisha might have healed. But instead, God's grace went to the outsiders. And suddenly, Jesus has, as the saying goes, quit preaching and gone to meddling. And they almost killed him for it. After church, there was a little boy standing in the narthex staring up at a large plaque on the wall. It was covered with names with little American flags mounted on either side. The little boy had been there for quite some time, so the pastor walked up and said quietly, how are you doing? What is this? The little boy asked, never taking his eyes off the plaque. The pastor said, well, it's a memorial of all the young men and women from this church who were killed in service. They stood there a moment in silence before the little boy finally took a deep breath and asked, which service, 9.30 or 11 o'clock? <laughs> they almost killed Jesus in that service that day, in Nazareth. Luke says they were filled with rage and they drove him up a hill outside of town so they could throw him off the cliff. No prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. That was 2,000 years ago and half a world away, but the people of Nazareth just did what any of, any of us would have done. 
They assumed the good news, this word from Jesus, was for them alone. We can't judge them too harshly because every one of us does it too. We talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We sing, he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I'm his own. It's the most natural thing in the world to understand God in terms of my need, my pain, my wants. We come to church each week with the problems we've faced that previous week. We come with the doctor's appointment we have on Tuesday, with the worry that keeps kept us awake on Friday night. We naturally want God to focus on us. We want faith that addresses us. We want religion that's about us, about our lives, our needs, our hopes. The good news is that Jesus does care about you and me. But the disconcerting news is that Jesus doesn't just care about you and me. God also cares about the widows and that leper and the Roman and that Muslim and the Democrat and the Republican and that fundamentalist, the enemy. The acceptable year of the Lord was not accepted in the prophet's hometown. The acceptable year of the Lord means that his mission and ministry and love and death are not just for us. They're for everybody. They're for the heathens, for the foreigners, for the outsiders, for all the people we love and the people we can't stand. Everybody. Frederick Beekner once suggested a little spiritual exercise that I think might help. The next time you walk down the street, Beekner says, take a good look at every face you pass and in your, in your mind say, Christ died for thee. That girl, that slob, that phony, that crook, that saint, that fool, Christ died for thee. What happens if we try it? I mean, really try it. Try it the next time you're walking through Market Square or the next time you're standing in line at Kroger. Try it when someone takes your seat in class or uses the last of the toothpaste or cuts you off getting into the turn lane. Try it. Christ died for thee. That's what we say here in this place. Christ died for thee. Slob, phony, crook, saint, fool, everyone. Christ died for thee. Amen.